Oh, well, good morning again. My name is Sean, I'm the lead pastor here, and we're going to be continuing our journey through the book of Colossians together. Uh, we'll be in Colossians chapter 2 this morning. It's found on page 10 in your order of worship. It's found on page 925 in the chair Bible there in front of you. And I want to give a welcome to our guests who are here. And if you'd like to know more about our church or more about, or if you want to contact me or maybe have coffee or talk about Jesus or the church or whatever you want to talk about, you can scan this QR code on the back of the bulletin there. And that does actually come straight to me and we can get together. And I'd love to talk with you about these things. And, and if you are a guest today and you don't have a, um, a Bible at home, please do take that Bible there in front of you in the chair as our gift for you. We'd love for you to have that. And again, today's passage is found on page 925 in, um, in that Bible when we get there. So before we get there, though, I want to go to another passage. I have a slide here for you to kind of get us into the mindset of our text for today. Proverbs 28.1 says this, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Love this verse, because this is like 3,000-year-old wisdom that just gets right to the human heart, doesn't it? The wicked flee when no one pursues. What's that about? Have you ever had to get a background check for something important? And you know it's fine, and yet, right? In the back of your mind, like, oh, what if, what if, right? Or adults, sorry, I'm going to out us. You know why we're still afraid of the dark? Because our guilty hearts, it's actually existential proof for the truth of Scripture that we are guilty and we know it deep down. And so we feel that something should always be out to get us. The wicked flee when no one pursues. That the righteous are as bold as a lion. And what happens is because of that guilt, that amorphous guilt that we're trying to get away from, we are very susceptible to all sorts of solutions to get away from that guilt. Makes us susceptible. And that is sort of what's happening at Colossae. In order to get away from their guilt, these false teachers have come in and they're taking advantage of that. And so Paul answers them yet again by anchoring them in the gospel of grace. And so with that, would you look with me now? Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. This is God's word. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Those are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And this is God's Word. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we're grateful that You have revealed Yourself to us exactly as You wish to be known. And so we pray, Father, that even now as we come before this text, You would be true to Your promise to send Your Spirit, to open it up, to give us understanding, that we might see ourselves and see Jesus. <clears throat> In whose name we pray. Amen. 
All right, so where have we been in the book of Colossians before we jump into this passage so we kind of understand what's happening here? So Paul has been talking to this church under attack from false teachers about not giving up on grace and turning to their performance and their work. Don't do that. Stay in grace. He anchors us back in verse 6. He says, look, as you received Jesus, so walk in him. You got in by grace. You grow by grace. Don't give up on that. In verse 8, he basically asked, what fullness is there in trying so hard to be accepted? Then in verse 9 and 10, he shows how what the world promises, Jesus actually has already, and he gives it to his people. Verse 11, he reminded them that Christians are completely qualified to be in God's family. We don't need any extra special secrets or mysteries that these false teachers offer. And then he brings it all together in verse 12 where he says that Christians have been raised to new life in Jesus when Jesus was raised. Don't let anybody then take these truths away from you in the gospel is where Paul goes today. And that gets us to our theme where we're going to kind of orbit around today and that's this. Don't let anyone judge you for resting in God's victory over sin and death. I'm really enthusiastic about this passage today because often people think Christianity is about feelings and emotions or abstract beliefs. And today, Paul is going to remind us and anchor us in historic, objective realities. So we get to see that Christianity is real. It's not abstract. It's objective. It's not emotional. So let's jump into this together in verses 13 and 14, which I've called Nailed It. He begins in verse 13 addressing the community of Christians. This is one of those Y-O-U words in the New Testament that's plural. So as you read it, think y'all. He says, and y'all were dead. Verse 12, Jesus was really dead and then really made alive. And he says, and so too, y'all, you were actually dead in your trespasses. That's a fancy Bible word that means the things you do. And then he says, you were also dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh. That's a Paul theological way of saying who we are on the inside. In our hearts and in our actions, we were dead. So one of the things I try to do, and some of you have questioned me on this, is I try to, and I don't do it very well, I admit, I try to peel away most things that could be seen as offensive to people who aren't very familiar with Christianity. I try to get rid of as much things that are kind of weird because this is where we get to offend people. This is the offense of the cross. We want, we want to have their offense taken away so that we can, they can be wide open for here we are. Here is how we are going to offend you. The Bible says humanity is objectively wrong in everything we do and everything we are. By our natures and in our actions, we are completely unacceptable to God. That's kind of offensive, isn't it? But that's where we have to start to get the purest gospel because it's in that state, completely dead in our actions, completely dead in our hearts, that what happens? God made y'all alive together, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Isn't that great? We were absolutely dead 
There's none of this, oh, well, here, he just offers you a gift. You just got to unwrap it. Paul's like, oh, you're giving a, a gift to a corpse and telling it to unwrap it. What's wrong with you? Well, God has given you the life preserver. It's right there. Just reach out and grab it. And Paul's like, um, they've already drowned. Why are you throwing them a life preserver? When you were dead, God made you alive. You have to start there for the simplest gospel. When I beg you to place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, what I'm also begging you to do is stop placing your faith and trust in yourself as your Lord. Stop looking to yourself to define your reality and live that out. Instead, submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. Align your life with this objective reality. Because then what happens is you get another objective reality. Look with me at verse 14. What does he say here in verse 14? He says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it, to the cross. It's hard to believe ancient Rome had a financial system for its upper classes, the people who actually had resources and finances, including like a system of records of debt, like a credit report. Paul appeals to that and says, guess what? Your credit report before God, the lifetime of rebellion and filth in thought, word, and deed. The objective guilt you carry around before three times holy God is canceled. God adopts us to live free and joyful because the debt of our sin has been canceled. This is not abstract theology. This is objective reality. Canceled debt doesn't just go away. It doesn't matter if it's a mortgage, if it's a whole bunch of student loans, or if it's our sin. If you owe and the person owed cancels it, it doesn't just disappear. It means that the person owed is saying, you know what? I will pay this price. I will absorb this loss so you don't have to. And in the gospel, what happens? Paul tells us right here that God himself absorbs the loss. I mean, you could go to 2 Corinthians 5.21 where Paul says, you know, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or you can just look right here where Paul says, not Jesus was nailed to the cross. What's nailed to the cross here? Your sin Jesus is so identified with your sin in the gospel that it's nailed to the cross. It's paid for. God himself in the gospel pays the debt for us. And then he says what? It's set aside. Horrible translation. Rare miss for the ESV. It's actually the word used when a soldier had to have his armor taken off of him. It was what? It was lifted off of him. It wasn't just set aside. It was lifted off. Your sin burden, when it's nailed to the cross, is lifted off of you. What a great picture. Are you sick and tired of feeling scared? Of feeling guilty? Are you tired of carrying around that shame? You, you can't even figure out what you're ashamed of? When you really embrace the reality of the gospel, you get set free from all that. It is lifted off of you as a burden. That's what the cross of Jesus can do. That's the objective reality Paul is offering to his people here. And notice here, if you follow along in the text, the doer of all these actions is God himself. 
The Father is the source of this redeeming action. False teachers following after what Satan did to Eve love to get you to doubt God's loving nature. They want you to see God as a taskmaster that you have to appease. They don't want you to see him as a loving father because if he's a taskmaster you have to appease, they can come in and sell you their curriculum for appeasing him. And so they try to convince you that, well, yeah, I mean, you're in, but you realize it's only like the constant nagging of Jesus is why God accepts you. No. Paul reminds us here, the gospel is God's idea. He is the doer of all the action in these verses. God doesn't just put up with you. God has canceled your debt of sin by placing it on his son because he wanted to, because he loves you. That's how much. And rooted in this gospel, Paul says, don't let anyone judge you for resting in God's victory over sin and death. The next thing we see starting in verse 15 is shame on them. I want you to imagine a parade, okay? So imagine a parade in your mind. Okay, maybe it's the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, or maybe it's the, maybe it's uh, back when this used to be a thing. Remember the Rose Bowl Parade when that actually mattered? Okay, maybe it's something like that. Every parade has its origin in the ancient practice of a triumph. It's a proper noun. It's not just a description. So, in an age before mass communication, how did the populace know that the war, because there was always wars, how did the populace know the war was going well? Or the political leaders far away, how did they know that the generals were actually being as victorious as the messengers said they were? Well, what, would, what they would do is as the generals victoriously left the battlefield and made their way back to the capital city, in every major city, they would stop and they would have a triumph. All of those enemy soldiers who weren't killed were captured, disarmed, and paraded through the town to be made fun of, to be taunted, to be assaulted, to be shamed in a triumph. It was a proper analogy. Hey, there's a triumph happening Sunday at 7. Be there. With that background, now let's look at verse 15 together. What does Paul tell us? He says, He, being God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In Jesus, God did a triumph over the authorities and rulers. Okay, what in the world is that? I know we're Presbyterians and we're uncomfortable with it, but the Bible talks about Satan as if he's like real and there's, demons are active. They can still harass and torment the church and Christians. At the cross, they were disarmed and shamed. In the New Testament also, sin is very often described as a power that holds us in bondage. Death is talked about as something that kind of overshadows us and keeps us enslaved to fear. So at the cross, sin, Satan, death, demons, they're all defeated, they're all shamed, they're all disarmed, and that's why they're so angry and doing stuff to you all the time. So as we appropriate that, what does that look like for us? It looks like this. Whatever you've given your life to, before you fall asleep at night and you're going through your day, that random guilt pops up. What makes you feel guilty? You feel like a failure. You feel like you haven't done enough. Whom are you trying to please? That's your master. 
that's the one lording over you. That's the one who wants you, who wants to consume your life, and that's the one that Jesus Christ has defeated and disarmed and is death. And when you really appropriate the gospel into your life, you can be set free from that. Or how about this one? This one really struck me this week when I realized this. That word for open shame is also used another place in the New Testament. This is in the, the nativity story. When Joseph first learns of Mary's pregnancy, if you know the story, he says he wants to divorce her quietly. So is why? Not to put her to open shame. It's the same word. Isn't that a beautiful thought? He loved her so much that even though she, he thought she had sinned against him greatly, out of his love, he's, he's not going to shame her. And out of that same love for you, God says, instead of shaming you for your sins, I'm going to shame your tormentors for your sins. What a beautiful picture of God's gracious love. Now, boys and girls, I want to make sure you're getting this for me. So let's look together at verse 15 of your version, okay? It's in the middle of page 10. I'm, there's probably a slide says this, God then got rid of all the things that make you feel afraid or doubt his love. Oh, boys and girls, you ever feel afraid about things? You ever, you don't even know why you just feel, you feel, does God really love me? Paul tells us here that in the gospel, God gets rid of those things. He defeats them so you can know God loves you. And remember, for all of us, where we've been here in Colossians, these false teachers come in and they're offering the secrets. Shh, I've got the real deal. Now, these immature people, they can't handle it. You, you're immature. Here, let me tell you what's really going on with this Christianity thing. Whereas God in the actual gospel, what does he do? It's public for everybody. There are no distinctions. Here's the good Christians, the medium Christians, the great Christians. They each get a different kind. No, it's for everybody because we're all bad Christians. There's no secrets. Don't let anyone judge you for resting in God's victory over sin and death. And the final thing we see in verses 16 and 17 is what I'm calling a shady judgment. Paul moves now from truth to application. This objective reality of the gospel, this truth he anchors you in. What do you do with this? What are you supposed to do with this? And look where he takes it. It's kind of weird. Look at me at verse 16. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, we don't know exactly what these false teachers brought. They didn't leave behind their curriculum, unfortunately. What we have is Paul's reaction to what they were teaching. So judging on his reactions, it looks like there's some sort of mixture of some Jewish Old Testament-esque beliefs with some mysticism, like, you know, if you say certain words, spiritual realities will happen, like magic and stuff, plus this idea of kind of ascetic self-denial. Like, you know, God will love you more when you hurt yourself for him. You know, think about uh, the, uh, the stereotype of a Middle Eastern, not Middle Eastern, uh, a medieval monk who purposely doesn't eat that much, who purposely doesn't wash, who doesn't have good clothes because the more they suffer for their sins, the more God loves them. That's called ascetics. That's, so there seems to be a mixture of all that stuff put together. Or maybe here's how to put it a different way. If you've been here a while, you've probably talk, heard me talk about the five gospel-destroying words don't you think Christians should? And then we insert our preference and we judge other people as more or less godly based on our preference, right? That's kind of what's going on here with these false teachers. They are all about that mentality. Real Christians eat kosher. Real Christians eat only vegetables. 
real Christians don't drink wine. Or perhaps more realistically, they were probably saying real Christians only drink wine. Because there's that strange passage where Paul's talking to Timothy. Remember, he tells him, Timothy, don't just drink only wine, drink some water too. What's up with Paul having to tell him that? It's probably he fell into this false teaching of, oh, if you're a real Christian, you only drink wine. So best Christians ever, apparently. I don't know. But what do we do with this? Because Paul is no enemy of self-discipline if you're familiar with his work. Right? Paul says, I beat my body that my desires may not, you know, contradict what I believe. Paul also shows in a couple discussions with other Christians like meat sacrifice to idols and some other things where he respects the scruples of other Christians even when he says you're wrong about your scruple. So what's going on here? This is not just about Christians behaving badly or, or good behavior. What is this about? It seems that what these false teachers were doing was it's not just good Christians have a preference and, and they do this. It's that really you're only a Christian if you do this. So those people who don't do this, they're not really saved. I mean, if they were, they would be convicted about this. They wouldn't do that. See, when you take this behavior preference and you make it a source of righteousness, that's when it becomes deadly. And that is what Paul is attacking right here. Paul says, do not let anyone judge you on areas where the Bible gives you liberty. It's a gospel issue. It's not just a preference. Why? Because when we judge another Christian as not being quite as in with God as we are because they don't do our preference, you realize what we're saying? We're denying the reality of verse 13. We're saying we're not dead in our sins and need completely new life in Jesus. We're just sick. And we need healing in Jesus and then this behavior modification. That's why it's a gospel issue. You're either dead and need resuscitation or you're just sick and need a little, uh, need a little tweak. See, false teachers, demonic temptations, they thrive on divisions in the church. And this is how they come in. They whisper that real Christians do this. Those other they're not real Christians, and that starts to create divisions. Christian unity, the Bible tells us, the fact that diverse people can come together and be one in Christ is actually one of the public sources of glory to God. The book of Ephesians tells us that God shows off in the heavenly places. How? By making a diverse people unified. And so false teachers want to stop God from getting glory, so they try to destroy unity. This is the secret. Here's the mystery. Here's how you really know God loves you. And we're susceptible to that because we all want to be an insider, don't we? We all want to feel like we have the special, unique knowledge. You know why? Because we were created to enjoy God's favor forever. We were meant to be an insider with God forever. We long for it. It's hardwired into our very souls. And verse 17 reminds us that one day, someday, we will get it. That impulse to be better than other Christians, to be the really favored of God, Paul says here is a shadow of the reality that one day, someday, we will get when we behold him face to face. And did you catch the incredible promise there in the second half of verse 17? Let's look at that together. He says this, instead of the shadow, what? The substance belongs to Christ. 
See, in Jesus, we have access to that approval right now because Jesus enjoys God's complete approval. And in union with him, we do too. Here's why it's such a big deal. Here's why Paul looks at this and says, don't let anyone judge you because our relationship to God's law, the legal demands of verse 14, is flipped in the gospel. Instead of being hardwired to perform, to live in the old Adam who was told what? Do this and you shall live. That gets flipped. And so instead of trying to earn God's favor through performance and judging others who don't perform as well as we do, we see in the gospel, oh, my trespasses are forgiven, verse 13. My debt is canceled. The legal demands are lifted off of me, verse 14. So now the substance that belongs to Christ is mine, verse 17. So now I'm free from God's law for God's law. In Jesus, God's instructions are no longer a burden they're no longer this mountain that we climb up just to, just to get a morsel of God's approval. In Jesus, we have all of God's love and affection that we can handle. And from that place of joy and security, we then want to obey God's law. I've, I've used this story before, so I apologize if it's a repeat, but it's just such a salient moment for me as a father and as a pastor. Like, oh, that's what it's like. So, Back when my son was very little, instead of what he is today, you know, he's in that stage, okay, parents, like, you know, right, pacifier, blanket over the shoulder, always following you around, you know, the big old beady eyes, like, look, the puppy phase, you know, oh, this is great. So anyway, so we have this dog. I grew up with real dogs who, like, retrieve things. We had this little dog who didn't, so I was trying to teach it to be a real dog. Because this little ball, I'm throwing the ball, I'm trying to encourage the dog, and the dog would kind of start to bring it to me, like, who's your good boy, who's your good boy, come on, who's your good boy? So he's like, we're doing this for a while, right? And my son is just sitting there, past fire, blanket, just watching the whole time. After, like, 15 minutes, throw the ball, my son throws his blanket down, sets, like, a perfect pick on the dog, and gets the ball first grabs the ball and comes running back to me and hands it to me. And so I go, oh, good boy, good boy. Right? Now, what I did not do is in that moment go, finally, you did what I wanted. Now you're my beloved son. Welcome aboard. No, how stupid would that be? What, what happened there? He already had my love. He recognized what his father wanted. And he's like, well, I want to do what dad wants. And so he did it. That is the Christian's relationship to God's law now. We see what our loving Father wants, and we're like, okay, I don't quite get why that's a big deal to you, but I don't have to. I'm going to do this because this is what Dad likes. That's what we get when we're set free in the gospel. These legal demands are lifted off of us as a burden, and instead, law becomes a delight rather than a duty because we love our Heavenly Father. And we're so focused on enjoying fellowship with our Heavenly Father, we ain't got time to evaluate how other people are doing on their journey of law. We don't care how they're doing on their instructions because I'm talking about trying to fulfill instructions for you. It sets us free from judging others when law instruction becomes a delight rather than a duty. Do you want that? So as we wrap this up, I just want to ask, have you lived through verses 13 and 14? Christian or not, are you free from shame? 
Are you free from the random guilt that just chases us around? Are you actually as bold as a lion or like the wicked? Are you scared of everything? Because see, humanity, deep down, we are guilty before a three times holy God. And we channel that into addictions. We channel that into being judgmental. We channel that into simply just giving up and checking out of all our responsibilities because we just can't do it anymore. It's exhausting trying to perform. But when we rest in the joy of utter acceptance in Jesus, when we rest in the peace of not comparing yourself to others, that is all available to you when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as he is offered in this gospel. Maybe you need to do that for the first time. Or maybe you've been around for a long time and you need to anchor yourself again in the reality of the gospel, that your debt has been canceled because it was nailed to the cross in Jesus. And in him, you're free from his judgment, you're free from the judgment of others, and you're free from judging others. I mean, if you want that, just repent and believe this gospel. Let's pray together. How gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, your gospel is just so good. Lord, I know my judgmental heart needs to hear this so much. I'm grateful. I pray for all of us here, Lord, that you would set us free from judging each other because we're trying to outperform each other, because we're trying to perform for you. And would you instead, Lord, let us see again, or perhaps for the first time, that Jesus' performance is all we need. And Lord, as he has been lifted up and shown to be crucified for sinners and raised for our new life, would you be true to your promise to draw all people to yourself. Even now, Father, would you work faith in our hearts and cause us to confess faith in Christ and believe this gospel. Pray that you would do this, Father, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.